0: It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns
1: to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. ba ba If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now, go. hello and welcome to instant genius a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form i'm jason goodger commissioning editor at bbc science focus magazine in this episode i talk to dr elsa panciaroli a paleontologist and writer about her book beasts before us the untold story of mammal origins and evolution Just finished reading your book, and um, the first thing I I learned from reading it, and perhaps the main takeaway that I have from it now, is that something I didn't know before: mammals go way back. So there's um, there's a line that you say in the book that mammals ruled the earth when the dinosaurs weren't even a twinkle in the planet's eye, which I really liked. So I thought let's start this at the beginning and go way back to when there was only one supercontinent, Pangea, on the earth, and that the very the very beginning of this thing. So how long ago are we talking about, if we talk about this, and what was the Earth like back then?
0: I think this is one of the things about um, science is where you decide to draw a line and draw a boundary. And so, you know, conventionally when we're thinking of mammals, we do think of them as a much more recent thing because we're drawing a very recent line under them but if we trace our ancestry right the way back we don't share an ancestor for example with reptiles we actually are an independent lineage right the way back around about sort of 300 to 320 million years ago is where we can trace our earliest earliest ancestors to they do share an ancestor with the with reptiles but that ancestor isn't a reptile or a mammal. It's the thing that came before. It's what we just call a tetrapod, which of course just means that it has four limbs and and four feet. Um, And the world would have been quite a different place. We have this single supercontinent or it's just forming at that point. And as a result, you get very, very different climates and weather systems. So we're looking at, um, you know, these sort of monsoonal sort of climates coming in off this off the sea, because the sea, of course, is also one massive sea. So I, I describe it as a kind of Janus world. You've got sea on one half and, and land on the other. But you're also looking at a time before lots of the different plants that we know today exist. There are no, for example, flowering plants at all, no flowers, nothing like that. Um, the, the dominant forests, um, I'm using air quotes, you can't see me, but I'm using air quotes, Because of course forests today are made up of of flowering plants, but they're also made up of conifers. Neither of them were the, well, they didn't exist or they weren't the dominant plants at the time. The forests were made up of things that were more closely related to club mosses and quill warts. Plants are today very, very small, but at that time were 30 metres high or more. And it was hot and very humid and swampy. And there was a the highest level of atmospheric oxygen that we've ever known on Earth. So it was quite a, a sort of volatile kind of a climate because obviously you know lots lots of oxygen equal lots of fires, forest fires being triggered. So despite the fact it's swampy, we also see evidence for these forest fires raging through uh, every so often. So a very interesting planet, quite different from the one we know today.
1: Yeah, I mean you set quite a scene in the book with you with your descriptions. Uh, one thing that uh, stood out to me. Is- Somebody's um a bit squeamish with insects is that there were giant millipedes and giant dragofli-
0: dragonflies wandering around. And I just thought that was terrifying. Oh, I know. So the, that's the other consequence of having a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere. Today, insects, the biggest ones are about the length of a sort of adult Human hand, a, a big hand. Um, so, around about 15 centimeters, something like that is the sort of biggest. And they're limited by how much oxygen they can get into their bodies. Because, of course, they don't have lungs. They, they have a sort of passive system um, of absorbing oxygen. So, if you've got more oxygen, you can have much bigger insects. And we did. We, I mean, there, were, there are, there's evidence, footsteps, for example, which you call them um, like trackways of millipedes the size of, of bikes, basically. They're huge, huge, big things, metres long. So yeah, if you don't like insects, you do not want to go back to this time period. So you mentioned there the, the
1: tetrapods, that's the, that's going to be our sort of ground zero from here. So these themselves emerged from, uh, evolved, sorry, from uh, sort of f- fish, shall we, shall we say, and they came out of the swampy water onto the land. So could you tell me a bit about that? What What was
0: going on there? Yeah, so they did. Not only did they evolve from fish, but if you ask somebody who studies fish, quite a lot of them make the joke that we ourselves are actually just very highly derived fish. We're all fish, (laughs) all backboned animals on the planet, really all come from fish. So, uh, yes, we see this sort of fundamental split among fish groups of what we call ray-finned fishes, which is most fishes on on the planet today. And then, um, the lobe finned fish. And that's what we are as well. Although obviously we've changed quite a bit, (laughs) but we do still see, uh, lobe finned fishes around. We have things like coelacanths and lung fishes. And it basically the difference, one of the sort of main differences is they have bones in their sort of front fins, which ray finned fishes don't, don't have. And it's those bones, of course, that are the precursors to a limb. So yes, at this time, right back at the beginning, we do see these first animals probably using these original limbs probably for pushing vegetation aside while they're still living in the water, rather than for you know this sort of classic idea that they they grew them to walk, which of course it, it doesn't evolution as we know, doesn't work like that, but they possibly co-opted them. And ended up using them for that purpose. So right back at the beginning, we have this ancestor. It's a tetrapod. It's come from this a branch of fishes, and it is basically neither uh, an amphibian, a reptile or a mammal. It's, it's the prototype of all of those things. It's the starting point. And then we see the, the branch that leads to um, that eventually includes amphibians. It branches first. And then we have the branch that we're on, along with reptiles, and they're the uh, the tetrapods that lay eggs that have a covering, um, an outer shell. So,
1: as you said there, like these these early tetrapods were the shared ancestors of all life on Earth through the backbone and four limbs. I mean, that's a pretty astonishing thing to think of, think about, really, isn't it? So, what what would they have looked
0: like? Mm, it's a good question. It's always difficult to describe. Ancient things that no longer exist because we look at them with such a biased perspective we're always looking backwards and of course, linear time doesn't work that way, uh, but we look back and we think, you know if I was going to just pluck a description out of the air that they kind of superficially look maybe a bit lizardy, you know they would have a sort of sprawled limbs out to the side um and at first they were relatively small, maybe the length of your forearm with sort of flat wide heads. Um, And a lot of them have eyes sort of sitting on more on the top of their heads rather than at the side, probably, so that they can look up out of the water, perhaps looking for insects, uh, which they might have been eating off the land um, at the water's edge. So they all kind of looked sort of like that um, at that point in time. But of course, you know, as I say, I say they look lizardy, but obviously... I'm looking back in time really lizards kind of look early tetrapody it's the other way around <laughs> so as we said we're going back 300 million years
1: uh, yeah that's a completely incomprehensible amount of time for a human being and you've just described to me what these looked like so how on earth do we know that that's a
0: very good question the uh, this So this is the area, I don't specialise in these animals themselves, but I know a few people who do. And they spend an awful lot of time, of course, reconstructing the skeletons of these creatures and comparing them to the, the closest living things that we can observe today in, in terms of how they might have moved and held themselves. Could they actually, for example, lift themselves up on their on their legs and walk, or were they dragging themselves along, this kind of thing? And really it all comes down to their skeletons. At this point in the fossil record, we don't really have any other evidence to go on. Later on we do have some soft tissue preservation of, of some of the of our ancestors, but at this point we don't really have many things like that. So it's all based on their skeleton. It's observation of how the skeletons put together. So yeah, as
1: we as we said there, these are the the shared ancestors of of, uh, backbone four limbed life on Earth, and you mentioned the action of evolution that's led from that point over millions and millions of years to the point that we're at now, um, and you mentioned there's no grand plan or guiding hand behind evolution. So h- how does that work? How does ev- evolution get us from tetrapods through all of these various different iterations of, of mammals and then eventually to human beings?
0: <laughs> That's an enormous question. <laughs> it would take about five, it would take a, wow, make more than five podcasts for me to answer that. I mean, I guess the kind of short answer really is, I, I, well, I here's the way I see evolution. I see it as a kind of glorious serendipity. And it doesn't have, you know, it does not have a destination. There definitely is not a plan to all this. Certainly not, in my opinion. Although obviously some people have disagreed in the past, but it tends to be in response, of course, to changes that are going on in the environment around uh, any any living creature. So changes occur in populations rather than individuals. So, you know, for example, when it comes to the first animals to walk on land, it wasn't that one pioneering individual, you know, started walking on land and everyone else copied or or whatever. Um, it, it occurs in populations and it tends to be, um, you know, that really there's a lot of randomness and a lot of variation within any population. And obviously any trait that gives an animal or a population of animals an advantage it basically proliferates in, in that population. So, you know, in the case of walking on land, there's lots of different theories for how this could have happened, why it might have happened. But certainly um, one of the possibilities is that with insects having already moved on to land, it could have been that there was a lot of food up there. And so those animals that already had limbs so they could push their way through these swampy swampy streams and so on, those that were strong enough to be able to pull themselves out and eat some of those insects would have perhaps done better and would have perhaps uh, had more offspring and therefore passed on this ability to be stronger on land and so on and so on. It multiplies through thousands and millions of generations. So really, it's tiny iterative changes like that that just make something survive a bit better. But when you look at the crazy things that end up happening through this process, it's understandable why people can hardly believe it's true, because it's, it's really amazing. But it's all just a matter of time we're talking about millions of generations and with that kind of time scale you can do some pretty bonkers things to any skeleton or any animal.
1: So you mentioned there uh, at one point the kind of the family tree split between uh, what would end up becoming mammals and us and, and reptiles. So you know what sort of when was that and, and what was going on? What what were the key differences in, the, in that split that we can discern between the the, the two branches?
0: So there's Quite a lot. There's a, what we would call a suite of differences, of characteristics in, in skeletons of fossils from, from that time. It's about the same sort of time, around 300 million years ago, that we were just talking about. Um, a suite of characters that we can point to and say, this tells us that this belongs to one group or another. But really, when it comes to the difference between the sort of reptile line and the mammal line, one of those differences is the one that most people focus on, and that's uh, in the skull And if you feel your own skull just behind where your eyes are, behind your eye socket, you can feel this little indent in the side of your skull. And that is this single sort of hole uh, that we have in the side of our skull. And that is the characteristic of our lineage, that we have one of these holes. Our one doesn't go right through the skull. It's just, uh, it's basically kind of, as I say, beside the eye and the side of the head. Um, But reptiles, um, they have two holes on this side of their skull, although some of them have um, gained or lost holes, and that's a very complicated, messy story on their side. But for our lineage, for the mammals, it's one hole on either side of the skull, and it has been right from the beginning. And it's the kind of telltale mark that we can use to look at the fossil record and say, yep, that thing, that's one of our ancient ancestors, uh, as opposed to it being on the reptile line. So that is really yeah that's really the smoking gun that we look for. There are other things, um lots of different little tiny details of the skeleton as well, but that's the number one.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. So sort of moving forwards from that then, we we come to something that you you call in your book the first age of mammals. So this is this is something that I think, I mean, is quite often omitted from different textbooks and things. I think a lot of people will be unaware of this. So when, when was this? Uh, what was the period, what was it called? Uh, what was happening on the Earth
0: during this time? Yeah, so I was a little cheeky with that title <laughs> because we consider ourselves, of course, to be living in the age of mammals now. But yeah, this is, this is in uh, what is called the Permian. Um, so just over 252 million years ago. So this is the time period after the one we were just uh, discussing, which was the Carboniferous. And in this time period, we see this first uh, sort of flourishing of that line of animals that we belong to, the ones with one hole on either side of their skull. They're called synapsids. Um, we are we are also synapsids. Um, and you, yeah, as you, you say there, I mean, really, we don't hear much about these animals. One of them you'll probably all be familiar with, and that's an animal called Dimetrodon um and you might have seen it hanging out with dinosaurs which it shouldn't be in any reconstruction but it looks well the way it's been reconstructed in the past has always been that it looks kind of like a giant reptile like a lizard with a huge sail on its back uh, like a sort of Mohican almost, all the way down its back. And as I say, this has traditionally been lumped in with the dinosaurs, but it's not. It's actually one of our ancient ancestors, very much on the mammal line, and lived very much earlier in time, in this time period I'm talking about, the Permian. And these creatures basically, you know, we, we think of it being, certainly the Victorians anyway, they thought of, it, uh, of us having an age of fishes, then an age of reptiles, and then an age of mammals. But in fact, at this time period, before the dinosaurs, it was our line, it was the mammal line. Creatures like Demetriodon and then the ones that came directly after it, they were the ones that really proliferated and they grew to very large sizes. We have creatures the size of, sort of great big buffalo, um, you know, big plant eaters. We have specialist carnivores, some of them with the first saber teeth that we see in any animal. You know, very specialised in meat eating, but we also have some little uh, diggers and tree climbers. Basically, a kind of first flourishing of our ancient ancestors, our lineage, and they're not technically mammals at this point, but they certainly are on the mammal line. They're they're uh, part of the same group as us. So it's a really incredible time period, but for some reason. We never really talk about it. It's not on the TV shows, really, uh, you know, uh, apart from Demetriodon, which always gets misclassed. And I have no idea why that is, because it's an incredible time period.
1: Yeah, it was I mean, I, th- I found it super interesting. It was something that I knew next to nothing about, you know, before reading the book. So just saying that this, this sort of flourishing of, of these animals, was there a kind of, um, how can I say, like a path through? So was it initially we had early success from herbivores, And then we we had the emergence of carnivores later on, or was it more of a sort of simultaneous thing?
0: It's really a kind of, we talk about the sort of emergence really of of a sort of ecosystem that we might recognise. And it's sort of happening all together. You know, all of these, these creatures are kind of interconnected. There's lots of different families and they're doing lots of different things. But it is the kind of first time that we start to see on land, this is mega herbivores as in very large bodied ones and mega carnivores um so this is a kind of novel thing we just looking back in evolutionary time you just haven't seen this until this point so it's it's quite a sort of innovative time really for in in terms of evolution in general that we start to see this I mean, it's really all happening through the Permian, particularly in the second half of the Permian. um, You start to get lots and lots of different groups, including the line that would then lead on to us, which are a little, at this point, a sort of... uh, underdog, literally, little underdog called Cynodonts. They emerge at this point as well. But the world has begun to dry out. It's very arid um, in the centre of this supercontinent. And really, yeah, they all start to emerge kind of at once, lots and lots of different lineages. But they don't last, of course, because as we all know, we then have the dinosaurs after that point. But what might have happened if we, if they hadn't become extinct is is something that certainly I love to sit and think about. Uh, how different the world might have been so we mentioned
1: there the um, this is all occurring during the the permian period so how long was that when did it span from and when did it end
0: so the permian starts just at the when the carboniferous ends so around about 299 million years ago and then it finishes 252 million years ago so it's about about 50 million years long basically So quite a long period of time. If you think that the time period we live in now began uh, 66 million years ago. So we're looking at a time period similar to the one in which mammals have once again come to be some of the dominant creatures on the planet. So you mentioned there something earlier that um, I think a lot of people will be interested in.
1: And you said there was the emergence during this time of the mega carnivores, such as the perhaps probably the most, I think, iconic extinct mammal a sabre-toothed cat. So what what were these these
0: animals like? Yeah, so in the book, I talk about saber teeth because I think uh, of all the kind of extinct mammals that people know about, we all know about sabre-toothed cat, saber-toothed cats, and we all tend to really love them. They're really sort of uh, iconic, aren't they? But sabre-toothed cats are really very recent. Only in the last sort of, 50, 60 million years have we had those, which to a to somebody who works in millions of years is very recent, um, although obviously not on a human time scale. But in this, in the Permian time period, we do have the first animals related to mammals on our li- on our lineage with saber teeth. Some of the most iconic ones are these creatures called Gorgonopsians, which I think is a, a fantastic name coming from the Gorgons of Greek myth. And these things, I mean, I guess you've got to kind of imagine them as. If you imagine, an enormous hairless tiger with huge sabre teeth probably would have had – its legs would have been slightly further out to the side than a tiger. So, of course, modern mammals have their their limbs right directly underneath them. This creature would have been a little bit more sprawled, but it still would have been able to move extremely quickly. Certainly, I would have thought outpacing any human who might have accidentally found themselves back in the Permian – and they would have been feeding on these massive herbivorous creatures that lived alongside them. So it's quite, yeah, they're, they're I guess, the sort of T-rexes of the uh, ancient mammal world. That's really interesting. There's just something there that um, I'd like to pick
1: up on that you said it's like a hairless animal. So what do we know about when ma- mammals started to get fur and hair and and, th- and things like this?
0: So this is a really good question. In the past, people have reconstructed these very ancient mammal ancestors as looking essentially like reptiles. In fact, they thought that they did evolve from reptiles, although we now know that, that that's not the case and it's two very separate lineages. But We do know from some fossils that have been found actually in Russia with skin impressions on them that our lineage at this point in time had what we would describe as glandular skin, which is what we've got. So in other words, they weren't scaly. They would have had um, a sort of smooth or knobbly sort of skin, but not with scales, not like reptiles. And as for hair, well, this is um, a bit of a sort of enigmatic thing. We, of course, hair is something that does not preserve very well in the fossil record, along with other what we would call soft tissues. So the oldest possible evidence for hair does come from the Permian, though. And it's actually from a fossilised poo. It's a coprolite, as we call them. And the researchers who found it at a site in Russia, they identified what could be one hair fibre inside this coprolite. And that would mean that whatever carnivore deposited this this coprolite had eaten something that had hair. But it's a little bit disputed. It could actually be a strand of fungi or something similar. So we don't know for certain. However, the chances are that hair probably developed as part of a sensory system, probably initially from whiskers, So if at this point in time in the Permian, we do start to see creatures that are burrowers on our lineage as well as on on the lineage of reptiles. But in our lineage, some of those little burrowers probably started to develop what we now know of, of as whiskers, and that would help them feel their way in the dark. And certainly a little bit later on, just after this time period in the Triassic, we start to see, um, other characteristics in the skull that give us clues that probably animals almost certainly had whiskers. And we think if they had whiskers, they probably had started to develop hair in general because it's very useful. Um, it not only keeps you warm, you know, in, in chilly temperatures, but of course it allows you to sense your environment all around you at all times. So one of the main ways in which we, we've traced back the, uh, the the development of hair in our lineage has been actually through the skull, which is a bit of, perhaps it sounds a bit strange, but two lines of evidence. One is that when um, animals have whiskers, they need to have lots of nerves and blood vessels on their essentially their lips in order for them to be able to twitch those whiskers and to transmit the sensations that they're getting from the whiskers to the brain so if you have lots of nerves and lots of blood vessels those have to travel across the surface of your skull and then through the skull into the brain so we can look at fossil skulls and we see that the nerves that would transmit those signals they appear in some of our ancestors around about sort of 200 to 220 million years ago and that's in the triassic And then, similarly, from uh, studies of um, the development of actually of mice in the laboratory, there's certain genes that, when they turn on and off, they change an animal's um, ability to produce milk, to look after their hair. So the kind of secretions and things in their skin that maintain their hair, those are also interrupted, and they're connected to this uh, hole that we have in our skulls called a parietal foramen, which is in the very top of your skull. And in humans and most mammals, it's closed. We don't have a hole. We have it when we're babies. Uh, anyone who's had, who's had a baby may may know that the very top of the skull is very soft because there's a gap there. And that's all that's left of this hole in our skulls, which all animals once had. But in mammals, this closed up. And again, it looks like this happened Around about sort of 200 to 250 million years ago in the Triassic. So, when we take all those bits of evidence together, that's our kind of uh, time period that we think that the first, not only the first fur appears, but probably also the first milk starts to be produced as well at the same time. These things are probably related to one another. Continuing to
1: think chronologically, we say we've reached a point in the timeline now that you said you cheekily called the, the first aid age of mammals. So mammals, they're doing great. You know, we've got mega herbivores, mega carnivores, but at some point something goes wrong, doesn't it?
0: Well, one of the things that I really emphasise in the book is the sort of cyclic nature of evolution, that there are constant cycles of these amazing new flourishings of creatures, but there's there's mass extinctions constantly. I mean, they happen all the time from small mass extinctions right up to what happened at the end of the Permian, which was one of the, in fact, it was the biggest mass extinction on Earth of all time. And it was a pretty brutal event. It looks like it was triggered by um, massive volcanic eruptions in what's now Siberia. And these eruptions, they spewed out, I mean, enough lava to sort of cover an area the size of China, you know, hundreds of metres deep. You're talking possibly miles deep. This is an absolutely devastating event. So not only would it have, of course, killed the animals within the vicinity, but as we know, you know, things like... um, Volcanic eruptions, they release a lot of greenhouse gases, particularly uh, sulfurs and aerosols. Um, and those would have radically altered the climate. Um, first, of course, creating, you know, smothering the, the planet, make, creating darkness with all of the sort of ashes and things that would have been in the atmosphere, but then raising the temperature and raising it to the point where some studies indicate that at the equator, if you had dipped your foot in the ocean, to go for a swim, it would have been as hot as, a, as your evening bubble bath. I mean, we're looking at like 40 degrees um, ocean temperature. That's how hot it was. So, this, of course, is devastating and devastating for everything. This is one of the only mass extinctions where we actually see extinctions among insect orders, which doesn't usually happen because insects are quite resilient um, to mass extinction events. So, yeah, it basically puts an end to this first flourishing of our lineage of, of these creatures called synapsids and, and therapsids. And it resets the evolutionary scene. You know, it sort of starts the clock again. And this time, rather than it being our ancestors that are the first off the mark, it's the reptiles who get there first and begin to uh, grow large and take a lot of the, the niche space up in the ecosystem. And so we have the the so-called age of dinosaurs.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was paleontologist and writer, Dr. Elsa Panciaroli. If you want to know more about the fascinating history of mammals, check out her book, Beasts Before Us, the untold story of mammal origins and evolution. Or to hear her tell me more about the evolution of mammals, head over to the Instant Genius Extra podcast. The Christmas issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com.